are new here, my name is Matt Rawlings, one of the pastors here, and we are grateful that you have come to join together to hear God's Word. We are in the middle of a series on the book of Revelation, and I'll move this back a little bit so we won't get as much feedback. Um, And as we're going through the book of Revelation, we have gone through the first three chapters now. We've just completed the first three chapters as of last week, and chapter two and three are all entirely about messages to the church. And if this is your first time here and you're wondering, what in the world are you guys doing reading Revelation? Revelation is a message that Jesus has given to his church to reveal himself so that we can know that, that he is the king who has conquered, he is currently reigning and ruling, and he's going to forevermore will reign. That's, that's the, the central message of Revelation, but it's a message that's written to a specific context. It's written to actual churches. This is not a generic message. This is a message written to his bride, to the churches, and it's written to us as well. So what we're going to do, um, instead of doing chapter 4, beginning of chapter 4, I want to go back and recap chapter 2 and 3 because I believe it's important for us not to let the messages that Jesus has, the letter that he has for us, just pass us by. It's easy to hear something from God's word. It's another thing to take it in and make it a part of who we are and seek to change in response. So that's our desire this morning. So we're going to read a lengthy portion of scripture. If you, I intentionally do not have the passage on the overheads for you this morning. If you do not have a Bible with you, just raise your hand. We've got about 20 or 30 Bibles to hand out. So if you don't happen to have one with you, don't feel any shame or embarrassment. That's totally okay. Um, people forget their Bibles. That's all right. So raise your hand if you need a Bible, would like a Bible. Ushers will pass them out at all. Anybody over here? Great. Anybody else? We have some more folks. Bibles, you need Bibles? Perfect. Well, everybody's brought the Bible. That's awesome. Great. Um, Gwen, if you'll start us off by reading in Revelation 1, and we'll be reading, I think, verse 10 to 20 there, and then we'll be going all the way through Revelation 2 and 3. Is it, is it high enough? There we I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one was like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Then I saw him. I fell at, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. 
Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And the angel of the church in Paragon write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who behold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, 
who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see." Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Jesus, thank you that you love us enough that you write these letters to your church. God, I pray that you'd impress them on our hearts, that we would receive these as your words to us personally, that we'd respond. God, it's impossible for us to hear unless you open our ears. Would you do that? God, it's impossible for us to understand unless you open our minds up. It's impossible for us to see you unless you make us have sight in you, Lord. I pray that you would do those things. Lord, would you fill us with your spirit so we can respond? Would you give us hope in you, Lord? And I pray that you would minister to each and every one of us here this morning and that you would fill me with your power as I preach in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's not normal when we take that much time to read lengthy passages of scripture, but just reading scripture alone is profitable. Actually, it's commandment in scripture is to the public reading of scripture, so it is good to hear God's word, and it's okay if you didn't get all the little details in that. We're not going to cover all the details. We've, we've done that in the previous seven messages prior to this. We've covered different details in each of the letters. And if you haven't been here and you're wondering, what in the world do those different things mean? I'd encourage you to go back and, and listen to some of those messages to hear some of the details. But today, as we listen to this, we just need to hear this as if it's a letter written to us. Because personal letters, they, they mean something. You know, I don't, I don't get a lot of personal letters anymore. I don't know about you guys. It, I don't know if anybody here gets a lot of personal letters anymore, but personal letters have become rarer. Um, about a month ago, we got a personal message for our church, not, not from Jesus directly, but um, this is a message from our church from a, a couple named Peter and Judy. Peter and Judy Somerville, they left about a month ago. They were part of our church for about 20 months or so, and then a job changed forced them to figure out what they were going to do with the rest of their lives and where they're going to live. And so 
they were forced into this scenario and they decided to move close to their children, who are their adult children in Kansas City. And after they left, they, they sent us a personal letter. They loved our church dearly. It was a place of healing for them. And here's what they wrote to us. And at the beginning, he asks if we'd share this with the leaders and other things like that. But here's what he says. Matt and Aaron, I hope that you can express to them that the blessing that Redeeming Grace Church has been to Judy and me. I'd like to just say a few words to you all. Some of you don't know us well because we've only been at Redeeming Grace for about a year and a half. We're sad to be leaving so soon, but we want to thank and encourage you all. We came to Greenville four years ago. This has been a wonderful time of healing for us here. Redeeming Grace has been a significant part of that this last 18 to 20 months. The most important thing in this or any church is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached. Matt and Aaron, thank you for boldly preaching the gospel. And then to the church, you all have heartfelt God-glorifying worship in song and the word. Thank you, Philip, and the rest of you who lead the worship time. I don't know where Philip and the rest of them are, but thank you. You have a solid network of small groups. Thank you, Dave and Melissa, the rest of our group for fellowship. Keep the small groups going. Keep inviting, encouraging new folks to get involved. You as a church are profoundly friendly to people of all ages. That's a great encouragement. We've had conversations with quite a few folks in the church that have gone beyond the news, weather, and sports that go to real life and spiritual matters, and this is a really good thing. Um, you all express the love of God here according to John 13, 35, where it says, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I can't think of a higher commendation that someone could give to us. And then he, he continues on. He says, So thank you for ministering to us, and we challenge you to find the next couple or family or single that comes to visit and love on them with the love of our Savior as well in Christ, Peter, and Judy. Um, the reason I share that is because personal messages are meaningful, and I hope that encourages you as a church. I hope it's encouraging to hear about the strengths that exist in our church. Sometimes you can become familiar with things. Sometimes you can become used to things. You can be used to the gospel preaching or God-glorifying worship or, or small groups or people where they talk beyond just the weather and news and sports and they get to the real things of life, or you become used to the fact that we have a loving church. And, and so a personal message is very encouraging. I hope it encourages you. The, the letter to Revelation, or the book of Revelation, is, is written really as an opening to seven different churches as, as letters to them. It's, it's a personal commendation to the church. It's, it's a bunch of things. It's a personal message written to churches with both commendation and correction. And then it's written with hope in mind. If, if you're like me, you can, forget, um, you can forget what it means to live a Christian life. You can also forget some of the good things that God's doing, that God sees those things, that, that Jesus is aware of those things. Anybody here ever forget and just become accustomed to some of the good things that are going on in your life? Anybody ever, ever forget those things? You can raise your hand. It's okay. This is interactive at times. We'll do that. Um, and then at times we can not only forget where, where God's at work and we need to see where God's at work because if you see where he's been at work, it'll encourage you that he's going to continue to be at work. But sometimes we can also become complacent and we need to be reminded, we need conviction. And so Jesus shares that message with all of his churches. He shares commendation, he shares conviction, and he gives commands about how to respond but then we're going to see the third thing that we're going to look at as a highlight of these letters is that Jesus doesn't just commend and bring conviction and commands. He also brings hope in both who he is and what he promises. And that's kind of the, the theme of all seven of the letters. And so we've already seen that the context here is each letter is written in detail to a church that Jesus knows personally. Now, I like to think of it as this is kind of like a wartime letter. This is, imagine that you are at home and your spouse has gone away. If you're married, if you're not married, a loved one has gone away and they're writing to you at, the, at wartime and they're writing a letter, a personal message. You, you, would, you would hold that dear. You would cherish that personal message. You would hold on to it until you got to see that loved one again. And so that is really what this is for us as a church. This is a wartime letter because you have to admit, we, we live in a constant battle. And if you're not aware of that, you need to be aware that we live in a constant battle with our own indwelling remaining sin, our flesh. We, we have a battle that we're always in there. But we, we, it's not limited to that. We, we also have a battle with the world around us. 
and all the temptations to materialism and pride and, and all kinds of deceitfulness of riches and all those things that, that battle for our souls. And then not only is it internal battles, is it the world around us, but the devil. There is an actual spiritual adversary that fights against us. And so in the midst of the battles that we face, Jesus has written this wartime letter. And, and think about that. If, if this was a wartime letter that in, in an actual physical war here, how would you view that? How would you cherish it? How would you receive it? How would you hold on to it? What would you do with that? I like to think that you'd keep it precious, that you'd get it out often to remind yourself of the person who's gone, and that you would remind yourself that this is not the end. They're coming back. They're returning. Here's what they had to say to me. Those words would become dear to you. That's how we're meant to cherish and receive these letters from Jesus. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a step back and we're going to see that one of the first things that Jesus communicates to his church, one of the first things that Jesus communicates to his church is that he commends and he corrects his church. Now, we often immediately jump to the, to the correction part. If you're like me, when somebody gives you commendation and then they correct you, you're more likely to only remember the correction. Anybody ever, ever have that experience? Maybe a spouse, a friend, and they say, or a teacher, and they're like, hey, you did all these great things right, and here's a couple things to work on. Maybe it's a boss in your quarterly review or your semi-annual review, and you sit down with them, and they tell you all the great things that you're doing, but they give you only three things that you got to correct, and all you can remember is, oh my gosh, those three things. Well, that's not what this letter is about. This letter is that Jesus intimately knows you. You're, you're one of God's children. You are one of the beloved. And so as he's, as he's gone to prepare a place for us, he's saying, hey, I know you, and I want to commend you all these wonderful things, but here's some things you need to work on to get ready for my return. And so he commends and he corrects his church. And look down your Bibles, there's some phrase that repeats at the beginning of every one of those seven letters. Anybody know what that phrase is? You can shout it out right at the beginning. He says, I something. I know. I know. Every one of the letters begins with that. I know. I know you. I know what's going on. I know your situation. I know your works. Now, why that's important for us is because you need to know, as one of God's children, you are known. You're known. You're not unknown to Jesus. The church is not unknown. Your unique setting, your situation, your circumstances, your struggles, your trials, what you accomplish for God, how you seek to please him, how you seek to live for him, you are known. And that's meant to be good news to us. We're, we're not cared for by a distant God, by a God who doesn't care about us. Jesus says, I know you. I know you intimately. I know you personally. And here's the really amazing thing. He doesn't then say, so you know what? I'm done. Because you know what? If, if somebody really got to know all of me, I don't know if they really want to be around me so much. You know, my family mostly knows all of me, but even then, they don't know all the things I think, all the things I feel. Could you imagine if somebody exposed everything you thought and just, you know, like, you had a little air bubble above your head, and every time you thought something, it just appeared there? How many people would love that? Okay, how many people would, would hate that idea? Um, I couldn't stand that because I'm not always thinking good things. And then I don't feel good things all the time either. And in fact, my thoughts, my emotions are all over the place. Not, not, you know, I might be able to control some of, my, some of my actions, but I can't control my thoughts, my feelings. And, and I don't do a great job there. And yet Jesus says, I know you. And he doesn't push you away. I know you. Now let me speak to you. I've got some things to say. And he commends his church. He knows the unique situation, unique setting that every church is in. And every church in their own little town has their own kind of geographic temptations that they're, they're facing. And so he knows the settings. He knows the trials. He says, I know, I know your works. I know your trials. I know your daily struggles and temptations. Every church is different. Every church is somewhat unique. And everyone in that church is commended to some degree for something. Now, there's a couple churches he doesn't give any commendation to. But if you read these letters, these letters are written to every one of the churches, not just to one church, because it says, he who has an ear. It's a phrase that repeats throughout each one of the seven letters. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So if there's any commendation, 
We're all meant to hear the commendation of Christ. He commends you because he knows you. And he doesn't commend you because you're perfect. He commends you for the work he's done in you. Even knowing that you have some stuff that you've got to correct. That's great because I'm thinking, if Jesus knows all the stuff I need to correct, I can't imagine he would commend me at all. And yet he knows everything about you and me, and he still commends us. He still commends us. And what he commends, it's not passivity, he commends active faith. Did you notice that? In each of the letters, he says, I know your works. I know your toil. I know your tribulation. In, in, in Ephesus, in, in Thyatira, in, in Philadelphia, he says, I know your works, your toil, your service. And in fact, he commends them five times. And, and what we need to see there is that he commends believers for how they actively put faith in Jesus. Our affection for Christ, our faith in Jesus is actually seen in how we live our lives. And he commends them for those things. And then he says to Ephesus and to Thyatira, he says, I know your patient endurance. Jesus knows when you have to put up with things in your life that are hard. He knows when you have to endure. You might be enduring something right now. If you are human, you're probably enduring some difficult relationship. Anybody here, you don't, don't say who it is, anybody here enduring some kind of difficult relationship in your life in some way right now? You can raise your hand, come on, it's okay. Some difficult relationship you have to endure. How about enduring temptations? And, and Jesus says, I know you're patiently enduring. I know what you're having to endure here. And you think, oh God, would you just take these temptations away? And he says, no, I'm actually at work in you, doing good things in you. I know you're patiently enduring. Great job at patiently enduring. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make you more like me through that patient endurance. And then he says, I know you're careful as well to guard the teaching. I know how you study my word. I know it's hard work. I know that you, you're careful to guard what you hear. That's a good thing. He commends the church for not just listening to everything out there, but by comparing what they hear with God's word. That's what he calls us to do. And he says, I I commend you for rejecting false teachers. They didn't put up with the teachings of Balaam, the, the teachings of the Nicolaitans, the teachings of Jezebel. People who said that it's okay how you live doesn't matter. It's okay. You can kind of do what you want to do with your body and that doesn't really matter. And he says, I know that you're rejecting those ideas and I commend you for that because the culture around you says it's okay. And he tells Smyrna, look down your Bible, he says, Smyrna, I know your faithfulness through tribulation, through poverty, and through, through slander. Has anybody here slandered you? Anybody here ever had times where you haven't been able to make ends meet where things have been tough? Jesus says he knows, he's aware, and he commends faithfulness through those things. He tells Pergamum in Philadelphia, I know you hold fast to my name. If you hold fast to the name of Jesus when everyone else says you're an idiot for for hanging on to Jesus, for trusting in Jesus, you must be dumb, you're not very intelligent, because why do you believe in this guy named Jesus, and yet you hold fast to his name? Jesus commends you for that. He tells Pergamon, he says, I I know how you keep the faith. You don't deny the faith even when you face martyrdom. So if you're facing a difficult situation in school or at work or with your neighbors and you have not denied the faith, hear the commendation of Jesus. And Jesus commends you genuinely. It's not like he's commending you and he's winking and like, here's what's really coming. I don't really mean it. I'm just setting you up. No, he commends you for the work he does in you. And in one sense, I don't feel like there's anything in me to commend because I'm aware at times of my weaknesses and temptations and how everything I do is mixed. But yet, the the genuine commendation of Jesus is meant to encourage. He knows you. He sees all the things you do. And one day, he'll actually reward you for all the ways that you serve him. If you place your faith in Jesus, you need to rest in something that, that you're completely accepted, you're completely beloved, and in every way he approves of you, even though there's things to correct He commends you for seeking to follow him and and be faithful. Do you feel the commendation of Jesus? Do you know that he's pleased with you? That's really astounding because the first thing I have in my head is an objection. Anybody here ever object to what Jesus says about you that's true? Yes, sin remains. You're not perfect. None of us are. The effects of sin have not been completely erased. The remains of sinful patterns and tendencies, they're still there. And so Jesus, he loves us. He loves us not to leave us there. And so he speaks to all those things. He speaks to temptations in these passages. He speaks to 
the trials and tribulations and weaknesses. He speaks to our condition. But here's something you won't find him doing in any of the seven letters. He doesn't condemn. In every one of these letters, when he convicts, there's a chance to respond. He convicts because he loves. He actually says, those whom I love, I reprove. If, if I was a father who went away, and my children are various ages, I have everything from a high school graduate this year in just another month or so, can't believe it, six weeks, and then I've got a five-year-old at home, kindergartner. I've got the span here. And if, and if I went away from them, I would want to leave them with something. If, even though I was going away, if I went away for a while, I'd want to leave them with some instruction here. And I'd want to tell them, hey, all the wonderful things I see in you, and here's some things to watch out for. But not to, not to make them feel bad. It's so that they could actually overcome those things. And so that's what we see in each of these seven letters is commendation, and then we see correction as well. But this is a loving correction. This is not like the condemning correction you might have received from some authority figure. And many of us have had a bad kind of correction, the kind of correction that makes you feel terrible about yourself. There's no hope. It condemns, and it just leaves you with a complete hopelessness. And Jesus doesn't do that. He corrects because he loves us. And what he corrects, he corrects a few things here, if you look in these letters. He corrects assimilation. And what is assimilation? That's, that's kind of blending in to the world around you. He, he corrects compromise, which means kind of giving in on areas that you know better. And then he corrects complacency and apathy and self-centeredness. Now, as I think through those different categories, I think at, at any given time in my life, one of those categories has probably applied. Have there been times where I just want to blend in and I don't want anybody to, I don't want to you know, stick my head up because I'm afraid it'll get whacked, you know? Or like Peter, when he just kind of fit in with the group around him, when they said, aren't you one of his disciples? And he was like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Because he, he was afraid of his own neck and how he might be persecuted. At other times, we're tempted to compromise because there's inherent remaining sin that kind of wants those things that we shouldn't want. And so we're tempted to make excuses and to make reasons for why we do things. You know, it's okay if we have sex outside of marriage because, you know what, I really love this person and one day I want to marry them or whatever your justification for whatever your own sin area is. It's okay if I steal or cheat or do something that's not really honest because you know what, ultimately I want to provide for my family and so you can justify things. Or complacency and apathy. Maybe you've been a Christian for a while and you're like, it's just difficult and you feel worn out and so you become complacent and apathetic. Jesus corrects all those things, not to condemn us, but because he doesn't want to leave us in our sin. The very worst thing for any of us as children of God would be to, to be left in our mire, to be left there, not, not, not being set free from there. Now, in one sense, Jesus has already completely set you free. At the same time, though, you out of those things, you can go back to our sins. And Jesus wants us to say, no, why are you going back to those things? Let me take you out of those things. You've been set free, now live like that. Look what he tells Ephesus. He says in, in, in Revelation 2, 4, he says, but this I have against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Their passion for God had waned. They were still doing lots of good things externally. They might even be loving God personally, but they weren't loving other people with the gospel. Look in, look in 2.14, what he, he tells to Pergamum. He says, I have a few things against you. You've, you asked them there to hold the teaching of Balaam, and he goes on to explain what that is. He says, they're eating food sacrificed to idols, and they're practicing sexual immorality. You're putting up with idolatry and immorality. Is there any area in your life where you're putting up with idolatry? You're putting up with immorality? Is there any area in your life where you've lost that first passion that you had when you first became a believer and you wanted to tell everybody you knew about the good news of the gospel because you had this love of God just was so overwhelming in you that you wanted to love everybody around you? Anybody ever lost a little bit of that first love? He talks to Thyatira in 220 about their idolatry. He says, you're tolerating the woman Jezebel. 
She's teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, eat food sacrificed to idols. So both of these churches, they were allowing and indulging idolatry. And you might think, well, I don't, I don't, I don't worship any idols. Well, if you begin to understand what the idolatry there was, their idolatry was seen because they were worshiping making money. And so they were going to the temple and participating in sacrifices with their guilds the different guilds in each one of these towns because their guilds controlled the purse strings. And so if they didn't go and participate together in these meals or sacrifices of the temple with their guilds, they wouldn't make any money. They'd be denied income. You ever tempted to compromise a little bit and say, you know what, I, I just, it's going to affect my salary if I, if I stand up for Jesus here. Other areas of idolatry in our lives, what people think about us, that's what they were facing, whether people reject us or not. My neighbors are going to think I'm weird if I talk to them about Jesus. Probably. But you might have an idol of what people think about you. He talks about idolatry. He talks about sexual immorality. And you think, well, I don't, I'm not sexually immoral. What do, you, what do you put before your eyes? What do you think about? What do you long for? Where do you look for fulfillment? He goes on Revelation 3, 1, he says to the church in Sardis, he says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You look like, to everybody on the outside, like you got it all together, but inside, you're dead. There's no passion. You're dead to me. You're, you're, it's like you're not even alive. You look really good, you got a great reputation, but you're dead. You're not passionate. Anybody ever struggle with that? So far, I'm thinking, man, I can relate to a lot of these different areas. Laodicea, we, we saw last week, he says, I know you're, in, in Revelation 3.15, he says, I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold, because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. And we, we learned that that's not about, hey, being cold, it's like being distant from God, being hot, being passionate for God. No, in, in that area, uh, there was Hierapolis, which was known for their hot springs that were healing and Colossae, which was close, and a city close to them, was known for their refreshing cold waters. And Jesus said, you're neither one. You're neither healing or refreshing. You're neither cold or hot. You're lukewarm. You're not good for anything. You like the water that you get piped in. It makes me want to spit, throw up. This is gross. You're lukewarm. You're dispassionate. You're apathetic. You're barren. Jesus takes apathy very seriously. In each of these letters, the Spirit is speaking and wants us to apply all of these messages to our own lives personally. This is a letter written to us. Hold on to it like that. Hold on to it like that. Revelation 2.29, and, and all throughout it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. How about you? Are you hearing the Spirit? Or when you hear these things, are you like, oh yeah, just yet another to-do list. Just something else to do. Or do you hear these as Jesus' loving words that say, I love you, I don't want you to, to go and chain yourself up again to these sins because I want you to be set free. I've already set you free and what you're doing in all these areas is you're going back and it's like you're chaining yourself up again. You're shackling yourself with idolatry and sexual immorality. You're shackling yourselves up with caring about what other people think, with riches, with all these other things. He says, I, I don't want you to live like that. I want you to live in freedom. I don't want you to be dissuade, dis, uh, taken, taken away by false teaching. I don't want you to make an idol of your reputation. I don't want you to worry about what, what people think of you so that you have to feel like you have to look good or fit in. I don't want you to be in bondage to accumulating wealth and security. I don't want you to be stuck in pride and self-righteousness, self-sufficiency. And, and he also says, I don't want you to give up. There's two churches specifically that he, he says, you know what, you, you just don't give up. Hold on. Hold on. Don't give up. He knows everything you face personally and intimately. And do you see in these letters that since Jesus knows and he sees everything that's going on in these churches, he knows and he sees everything going on in your life too. He's not dispassionate. He's not apart from you. He's walking among the lampstands, the lampstands of the churches. He walks among the lampstands. He sees, he knows you. This is a personal letter written to you. He knows your every strength and weaknesses and he's speaking to every area of our lives in these letters. The question is, how do we receive it? 
you know, for me, if I've experienced conviction, and actually probably every Sunday in the last seven Sundays at least, at least, I've experienced some form of conviction from each of the different letters. And, and yet, my tendency is to be, hear conviction, and then because I'm hearing it, think that I've actually done something with it. Anybody ever have that temptation? You know, just to hear a conviction and then say, that was a good message, or that was something, you know, boy, God, thanks for speaking to me, and wow, that was something good to chew on, and then you forget it, and then maybe in care group you're like, oh yeah, I forgot about that, and then they bring it up again, and then you go home. But the problem is, is that we don't take these letters actually as instruction, and we're meant to do something with it. If you were one of these original churches, and you got this letter, and it was written to the church in whatever this area is called, we're not really Simpsonville, we're not Malden, we're not Greenville, we're not Five Forks, we're Woodruff Road area here. To, to this church, you would take that letter and you would see it as a very personal thing that you're meant to respond to. That's how we're meant to respond to these letters. It's, it's a personal thing. You say, okay, what am I supposed to do? Don't stick it in a drawer and forget about it. Cherish it, read it over and over again. Take them out again and again because seasons change and it's gonna apply to us differently. He knows us and he wants us to respond to him. The Spirit speaks to his churches. He commends his churches. He corrects his churches. He commands his churches to respond with faithful zeal. That's the second major thing we see. He commands his churches to respond. Don't sit on this letter. Don't be just okay and say, okay, I agree with that and here's the areas I see. He actually wants us to respond. He commands us to respond to do something. Does that mean somehow that the Christian life is dependent on your works? No. But our response to him is evidence that he is alive in us, that he's placed his spirit in us. And so if you are not responding with conviction and repentance and seeking to love him, then you should wonder, am I really born again? If he's not giving me that desire to repent, that desire to respond, then you have to wonder, am I, am I really born again? Was he, is he really done a good work in me. So he commands his church to respond with faithful zeal. The very beginning of, of Jesus with his disciples in Luke 14, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This is a radical call. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is not optional. Whoever, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross, what does that imply? Denying ourselves, dying to ourselves, and come after me. Follow him with zeal. He says, you can't be my disciple. The Christian life is all or nothing. It's all or nothing. There's no such thing as becoming a Christian, leaving the things of Christ behind. It's not about getting fire insurance to keep us out of hell and then living like we want. Jesus commands us church and he commands us because he's our king, our savior, our master, our lord, our, our groom. He died for us. And what he commands is a faithful response. Look down at Revelation 2.5. He says, therefore, remember from where you've fallen and repent. What do you do? The first thing you do is we hear, remember. Remember what he's done in your life and repent. Do the works you did at first. How can you and I respond? Remember what's true and right and good in light of his word. Remember what God's done in your life in the past. I want you to do that right now. Think about it. What, what, was, what was it like to love God after I first became a believer? And you, you probably did it very imperfectly. Maybe you were like me, you were really excited, you might have done some dumb things, but, but that passion you had. Remember, he says. And then he says, repent. If there's any way that you're convicted, repent. And repentance means it's a choosing to turn away from and walk in the other direction. And he, that's a repeated statement he makes throughout. He tells Ephesus and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Laodicea, repent, 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 repent. What do you do if you find you relate in some way to one of these messages to the church? Jesus says, remember, repent. Remember who you are. Remember what I've saved you from. Remember the love you had for me. Now repent. Now not everybody is sinning in every way. Some who just don't feel like they can hold on any longer. They're tempted to give up. And Jesus says, don't, don't, don't give up. Hang on, don't fear. Continue to be faithful. Revelation 2.10, look in your Bible. It says, don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison. 
that she might be tested for 10 days, you're going to have tribulation, be faithful unto death. Here's the really shocking thing that we learned in that passage. Jesus knew that the devil was about to throw them into jail, and that throwing into jail was going to result in their death. And Jesus knew that, and he was not taking them from that. But he's saying, I'm, I want you to be faithful even unto death. And by the way, you might not understand it. It might not, I mean, you, you won't like it. It won't be good for you in that sense. But ultimately, he is going to give the crown of life. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. He promises something better than this life to those who are faithful. Look at Revelation 3, 2. It says, wake up. Stop sleeping. You know, you're just kind of stumbling through life. You're not really being thoughtful. You're not being cognitive of what your choices you're making. He says, no, don't live like that. Wake up. Strengthens what remains. It's about to die. Um, Your muscles, your spiritual muscles are atrophying. You need to do some work here. Wake up. Work out. He says in verse 3 of Revelation 2, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you won't wake up, I'll come like a thief. You won't know what hour I come against you. Revelation 3.11 says, I'm coming soon. Because he's coming soon, hold fast, hang on. It's, it's like you're hanging on to a lifeline dangling off a cliff. Hold fast. It's that graphic picture. Hold fast. I'm coming soon. Revelation 3.18, he says, so what, what do you do if you are looking to the world for riches? He says, put those aside, and I counsel you to, to find true riches. What do you do if you're clothing yourself with earthly garments, trying to be impressive with the people. He says, I counsel you to find rich white garments. So he says in, in Revelation 3.19, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, true riches, so that you might be rich. In white garments you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes that you might see. You might think you don't need me, Jesus says, but what you really need is the riches I provide. You need the clothing I provide that, that makes you righteous and not naked. And, and you need salve that makes you able to see how things really are. He says, though as I love, I reprove and discipline to be zealous and repent. And then he promises, if anybody does respond and hear his voice and opens the door, he says in Revelation 3.20, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. In every letter, there's something else that occurs. Not only does he say he knows each and every church, but does he tell each and every church to hear what the Spirit says, but he says something else to every church, every church, no matter if there's correction or encouragement to that church. Every one of the seven churches says this. He says, to the one who conquers. To the one who conquers. To the one who conquers. You know what that implies? We're fighting. We're in a battle. This is a wartime letter. We are in a battle. There is a fight. And there is an implication here that we need to battle the flesh, the temptations of the world with the devil. We're expected to conquer and to overcome. So the question is, how in the world do we do that? You know, if you are listening up to now, you might be thinking, wow, this is a really moralistic message and I feel really terrible. That's not the intent of why Jesus brings his correction why Jesus addresses the church and reveals things, he does those things so that we can respond, so that we will conquer. He's not confused about whether his people really will conquer or not. He is sure his people will conquer, and he gives these warnings to us as a means to make sure that we do conquer. This is not saying that true believers will fall away. This is revealing who are true believers and not. And for those who are true believers, you conquer by looking to Jesus and his promises. And that's really the third thing we see is that Jesus calls his church to hope in him and all of his promises. Jesus calls us to hope in him and all of his promises. If Warren Buffett came to you and he said, you know what, you give me a thousand bucks and I'm going to invest that. And by the way, if you don't know who Warren Buffett is, he's one of the richer men in the world. He's a brilliant investor. Imagine he comes to you and he says, you know what, give me $1,000 and I'm going to take that $1,000 and I'm going to make it into 100000 in a year. Do you th- would you give it to him? Probably. He's pretty reliable. His advice is pretty good. He's good for the money as well. If he says, you know what, I'm going to guarantee it. And by the way, if for some reason doesn't make it, I guarantee you to make him $100,000. And you think, 100000 bucks to Warren Buffett, that's no big deal. He can do that. 
But if a guy named Bernie Madoff, he was in, I don't know if you remember who Bernie Madoff was, it was a Ponzi scheme, and, and he asked for investors to give him money, but what he really was doing was he was taking money from this person and giving that person money, so it looked like they were making money, but nobody really made anything except for him, because he was a, a scammer, he was a con artist, he was a thief. Now, if Bernie Madoff calls you from jail and he's like, hey, this is Bernie Madoff, you remember me, the Ponzi guy? Uh... Can you give me a thousand bucks? Because I'm going to turn it out into a hundred thousand in six months. Would you give it to him? I hope not. I hope you're not nearly that foolish. And what's the difference? In one case, you know the character, the proven reliability of someone, and in contrast, you know the proven unreliability of someone else. So, what are we meant to do with these, these letters? We're not meant to look to ourselves for hope. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying you've got issues, so trust in yourself to fix your issues? No. Hear what the Spirit says, first off. But then he tells us two things about himself in every letter. He gives two things about himself in every letter. He tells us who he is. And then he tells us his promises. That's another way of saying Jesus is communicating the good news about himself. You know, Jesus actually is the good news. He himself is the good news. And so in every letter, he, he communicates a specific aspect of who he is, his character, his nature. He tells you what he's done, who he is, and then he gives you his promises, why he wants you to trust in him to look to him. That's how we conquer. And actually later on in Revelation it says, they conquered by the blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony. How did they conquer? Because of Jesus and holding fast to their hope in him. Our hope's not in our abilities. Our hope's not in ourselves. There's hope that he's going to take our small efforts and make those bear fruit. We can trust him to do that. The kind of hope he's calling us to is a dependent hanging on. It's a knowing that he holds us securely. And he calls our attention to who he is. Don't forget who Jesus is in your battle against sin. If you forget who Jesus is in your battle against sin, you will have no hope. Because you are not able to overcome your sin. But he has overcome all of your sins, so now he will make you able through him. And maybe you've had somebody be unfaithful or lie, somebody deceive you. You don't raise your hand, but anybody have you ever had somebody be unfaithful to you, lie to you, deceive you? It's important that we know who we trust and why we trust them. So he doesn't call us to a blind trust in him. He he shows us who he is, his demonstrated trustworthiness, faithfulness. What we think about Jesus makes an eternal difference. How we see Jesus makes an eternal difference. If you are not seeing Jesus for who he is, you will lose hope. So look up. Look up outside of yourself. See hope in Jesus is what these letters are all meant to do. You know, your situation might feel hopeless right now. Look up to the one who gives all hope. He tells us some things in each of these letters. He says, I hold the seven stars. The seven stars are the angels of the churches who are responsible for, the angels responsible for the spiritual aspects, spiritual warfare of the churches here. And he says, I hold them. Not only that, I walk among the lampstands. He says, he's compassionate, he's near. That's what Jesus says. He's compassionate, he's near. He's walking amongst you. What else does he tell us? He says, he's the first and the last. What does that mean? He's sovereign over everything. You can trust him. You can look up to him. He's sovereign. He has, he's the first. He's the last. What else does he tell us in this passage? He says, I died. I came to life. I died for your sins. So that all of your sins are all these things I'm addressing. They're already paid for. They're already covered. And by the way, I've come to life to show that it was effective. The payment was made and completely acceptable to God. He tells us some other things. I have the sharp two-edged sword. What is he saying? I, I'm able to pierce the division of soul and spirit. My word is powerful. He tells us some other things here. He says, my eyes are like a flame of fire. He sees clearly. He cuts through the haze of life. He can enable you to see clearly. His feet are like burnished bronze. He walks in purity in all his ways. He can enable you to walk in purity. He has the seven spirits of God. What does that mean? He has the perfection of the Holy Spirit that he in every way holds and has the spirit perfectly and is able to give the spirit perfectly. That's what we need, not just to hear the spirit, but we need the one who gives the spirit. He says he's the holy one. He introduces himself that way. He's completely righteous. He's perfect in every way. He knows 
what it means to walk in holiness, and he can enable you to. He's the true one. What does that mean? He's, he truly is trusted. He's, he's faithful. You can trust everything about him. He, he embodies truth. He is the key of David. What does it mean? He can unlock any door that there is. He is the Messiah. He opens up the way to heaven and no one can keep you out and he closes other doors and no one can open them. He has all power. He says he's the amen. He's the faithful. He's the true witness. He's the beginning of God's creation. If you don't see Jesus for who he is, you won't hope. But if you see Jesus for who he is, there's real hope. There's real hope to respond here. He's never distant, he's never far, he's never ambivalent. You know, I've got friends who are ambivalent to me. They're not great friends. Jesus isn't like that, he never gives up on his bride, he never walks away. Maybe you've had somebody walk away from you when you've, they've, they've seen your nastiness or when they don't like you, you do something that they don't like. He doesn't forsake, he never walks away, he never abuses He doesn't mistreat. He always loves. He's always faithful. He's persistent. You ever heard somebody give up on you? Jesus doesn't. He's gracious. He's not harsh. He's merciful. He doesn't reject. He doesn't put us away. He's not embarrassed to pursue us. You know, I've been embarrassed of people before. People have been embarrassed about me probably far more often. He's not embarrassed to pursue us. Here's really something that's cool. Um, I, I know all the disgusting things in my heart and my head. When we're disgusting, he's not disgusted with us. He doesn't ignore us. When we're unfaithful, he doesn't turn away. He pursues us lovingly, graciously, mercifully. He seeks to restore and heal and refresh and revive. That's what we need to see about Jesus, who he is. And then you also need to see, the last thing we need to see is the promises that he holds out to us. Sometimes the reasons we go astray is we're holding on to false promises. What, what false promises are you hanging on to? False promises of fulfillment. False promises of enjoyment. False promises of acceptance. False promises of satisfaction. And you can look to all kinds of places for that. You can look to relationships. You can look to substances. You can look to um, other people, you can look to things, you can look to money, you can look to profession, you can look to reputation, you can look to clothes, to possessions, you can look at all those things for security and comfort and peace, and you can look to false promises and fail to see the true promises you have in Jesus. What promises do you need to set aside? And then where do you need to see that Jesus promises the best? He's not Bernie Maddox, but he's way better than Warren Buffett. Here's what Jesus promises, and we'll close with his promises. He says, I will grant to eat the tree of life. You want something good? You want good lasting fruit? He says, I'll grant you to eat the tree of life. You'll find death in all these promises of the world, but what the promises I give you, they give life. And then, then what else he says? You won't be hurt by the second death. As you put your faith in me and you overcome, you'll eat the tree of life. You won't be hurt by the second death. You might die here. You might suffer here. You might have illness and sickness and disease. But here's the good thing. You won't be hurt by the second death and you'll live forever. And then I'll always have food for you. You'll never go wanting. You might be wanting in this life. He says, I'll give you some of my hidden manna. I'll truly satisfy you. I'll give you a white stone with a new name written on it. Nobody knows of one who receives it. It's our very own special name. You feel like you're not special? Jesus says, I have a promise for you. I have a special name for you, reserved for you. You are special to me. And nobody else has to know the special name that I have for you. You are dear to me. You're my beloved one. It's like a pet name that he gives to us. His endearing name. Not only that, he says, I give authority over all the nations. Even as I myself have received authority from my Father. That's pretty astounding. You feel like a low life. You feel like there's no way that you'll ever walk in victory. And, and Jesus says, you know what? If, if you overcome by putting your faith in me and not in what your position is here, I will actually make you rule and have authority along with my Father. I'll give you the morning star. Be clothed in white garments. I'll never blot your name out. 
You might feel like all the things you've done have blotted your name out. Jesus is saying, no, continue to hold on. Have faith in me. Respond to me. And I'll never blot your name out. You can be sure of that. I'll confess your name before the Father. I'll make you a pillar in my temple. You'll never go out. You'll always be there. I'll, I'll write on you the name of my God. You belong to him. And I'll write my name on you. The consummation of the, of the marriage is to receive the name of the one we marry. And that's the picture we have here of Jesus writing his name on us. Permanently carving it into us. And he says, I write on the name of a city, my God. You have permanent citizenship in heaven. That's all the promises of God. I'll grant him to sit with me on my throne. I'll, I'll give him my new name. These letters are meant to be a letter given to us for us to hang on to, for us to hope in. What are you hanging on to? What are you hoping in? What area has God convicted you about that you need to repent from? What, what area do you say, you know what, I want to turn from trusting in those things, and Jesus, I want to turn back to you, to who you are, and trusting in your promises, and he desires to give you everything. All you have to do is trust in him, look to him, respond to him in faith. Why don't we have a band go ahead and come up, and we'll, we'll close with song. Let's pray. Father, let us hear what the Spirit is saying to each and every one of us. Let us look up to Jesus and have hope. Let's hear this as a personal letter to us. And then, Lord, let us receive all of your promises and let us receive true encouragement, true hope. In your name we pray. Amen.